Part 3 The Transformation of the World Batter my heart, three-person God, for you, as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend, that I may rise and stand, or throw me and bend, your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. I, like an usurped town to another due, labor to admit you, but oh, to no end. Reason your viceroy in me, me should defend, but is captived and proves weak or untrue. Yet dearly I love you, and would be loved fain, but am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie, or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. John Donne, Holy Sonnets, number 14. Chapter 10. Breaking Bread, the Rite of Transformation. In the preceding chapters, we have investigated the fundamentally revolutionary or symbolic view of the world presented by the Bible. We have inspected some of the fundamental items of furniture in God's world house. Now we need to pull all these pieces together into a worldview and show how God has acted to bring his world from glory to glory through the transforming process of history. In the present chapter, we shall look at the process of transformation. In chapter 11, we shall look at man, who is God's primary agent for transforming the world. Then, in chapter 12, we shall begin our study of the design of the world, as God originally made it, and as he has acted to transform it. The Bible opens with a garden and closes with a city. This simple observation points to the meaning of history, of process, of change, of time. Something has happened during the years between Genesis 1 and Revelation 22, and that something is the work of glorification. The world, created good, has been transformed or transfigured. The potential has become actual. The raw material has been worked into art. Man is God's agent for the glorification of the world. Man is positioned between heaven and earth. He started out at the apex of the pyramid, the holy mountain. There he was able to see into heaven, to perceive the heavenly pattern, and then bring it down into the world and transform the earth. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just so, Moses has shown the pattern on the mountain, and then he built the tabernacle on the plain, Exodus 25.40. Just so, Jesus ascended to a mountain to speak the Sermon on the Mount, giving the pattern of the kingdom to his disciples. The labor of glorification takes nature and turns it into culture. Henry Van Til has written that culture is the activity of man as image-bearer of his creator informing nature to his purposes. The natural glories of the Edenic world are reworked by man into the cultural glories of the New Jerusalem. Since this is man's task, to dress the garden as well as to guard it, Genesis 2.15, we can expect God to give direction as to how to go about it. We find those directions in Genesis 1. The Fivefold Pattern of God's Work God could have made the world instantaneously, or he could have done it over the course of six billion years. He could have taken six seconds or six millennia. The fact that he chose to take six days is significant, for his sole revealed purpose in doing so was to set a pattern for his image. This is stated in Exodus 20, 10-11 where man is told to work six days and rest on the seventh, 
because that is what God did. The world was designed for man, and God's actions in building up the world are prototypes of human actions in continuing to build up and glorify the world, transforming the raw materials of Eden and Havilah into the perfected beauty of New Jerusalem, from glory to glory. Man's work of recreation follows the pattern of God's original work of creation. God's original creation of the heavens and the earth out of nothing obviously cannot be imitated by man. From that point on, however, God acted in ways that man can copy. He brought light to darkness, gave form to the shapeless, named the unnamed, apportioned the restructured world to various kingdoms, etc. Man copies these acts of illuminating, restructuring, naming, distributing, etc. For reasons that will become clear as we proceed, let us synthesize the material in Genesis 1, 2, and 2, 4 into a five-fold sequence of actions. First, God took hold of the creation. I believe we can see this expressed by the phrase, and God said. The Word of God is the member of the divine trinity who acts in the world to restructure it according to the plan of the Father and under the hovering guidance of the Spirit. We see this in Proverbs 8.30, John 1.3 and verse 10, and Hebrews 1.2 and verse 3. The Father plans, the Son executes, the Son comes to do the will of the Father. Thus the Word of God is the hand of God, and accordingly the glorified Son is seated at the right hand of the Father. Man images this aspect of the divine work when he lays hold on any created thing to begin to work with it. Second, God restructured the creation. This is particularly in focus in the first three days of the creation, during which God separated light from darkness, waters above from waters below, and land from sea. The world, which was already glorious in that it reflected God's glorious person, was rendered even more glorious in the course of time by being broken down and restructured. Men continually and inescapably image this action of God. If I remove a book from my shelf, I have broken down the original form of my room and restructured it. If I dug up ore from the ground and heat it so as to separate gold from dross, I am restructuring. This act of restructuring is what we generally think of as work in the strict or narrow sense. Once things have been broken apart and restructured, they are different from what they were before. New names are needed. Gold ore is transformed into pure gold and dross. Thus we see God giving new names to the products of his labors on the first three days of creation. Day, night, heaven, earth, seas. Similarly, we give names to the new things we bring forth, whether we produce a child, a work of art, or a new street. Third, God distributes his work. This is particularly in view in the last three days during which God gave the firmament to the sun, moon, stars, and birds, the sea to fishes, and the land to animals and men. This act of distribution follows naturally upon work in the strict sense. After I have made something, I can do one of three things with it. I can keep it for myself, as God kept the Sabbath time for himself, and as he temporarily reserved the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I can give it away, or I can trade it for the work of someone else. When you buy something, you almost always get directions to go with it. When you give something to someone, you usually provide some instructions along with the gift. Uh, let me show you how to work this thing. Thus, as he distributed the world, God gave commands to fish, birds, beasts, and men. These were to be the rulers of the world. 
and they were under his orders. Thus, God's word is always simultaneously both promise and command, both the grant of his kingdom and the rules to obey concerning it. See Genesis 1, 28-30. Notice that the order is gift and then rules, promise and then law. God gives the kingdom and then gives us rules to live by. The order is never law and then gospel. God's word comes to us first as a tree of life, giving us grace, and then afterwards as a tree of knowledge of good and evil, giving us rules. Fourth, God evaluated his work. This is noted in the text where it says, God saw what he had made, and it was good. And in chapter 131, God saw all that he made, and it was very good. Initial evaluation is preliminary to consumption or full enjoyment. Before eating, there is tasting. Thus, when mother makes a soup and distributes a bowl to each member of the family, the first taste elicits an evaluation. Well, how do you like it? That question comes not at the end of the meal, but after the first taste or so. Fifth, God enjoyed his work. God's Sabbath rest on the seventh day was not apart from the creation, but in it. God's temple, where he rested enthroned, was always set up in the world. For instance, in the midst of the Israelite camp, or in the center of the land. Having tasted his work and found it good, God relaxed and enjoyed it. Similarly, if the soup is good, we enjoy a whole bowl of it, and maybe a second. These five simple actions are very ordinary, and are inescapable. It is, or should be, encouraging and invigorating to realize that the imaging of God is not focally the performance of great heroic acts, but the carrying out of very ordinary activities. For instance, for me to give you a glass of water means, I take hold of a glass in the cabinet and take hold of the faucet. I restructure the cabinet by removing the glass. Just as God separated the waters from the waters by putting firmament between them, so I separate one glass from the rest, putting space between them. Also, I separate water from the pipe into the glass, dividing water from water. I probably won't rename it, but my mind will recognize that empty glass has become filled glass. I distribute the glass of water to you, and I may say, drink up. You evaluate the water. It might taste bad if the faucet had not been used for a week, and I failed to run the water out of the pipe first, or it might taste fine. Assuming your judgment is that the water is good, you enjoy it by drinking more of it. Such simple, mundane actions constantly and unavoidably imitate God's actions in the building of the world. Every calling in life, Indeed, every action in life thus has immeasurable dignity. The Sixfold Pattern of Man's Work Because all men, Christian and apostate, thus constantly imitate God in their work, it cannot be in the area of works that the final distinction between the righteous and the wicked is found. Rather, it is in the attitude or faith that accompanies these works that makes the difference. In the truest biblical sense of the word, this attitude is piety the religious sense that accompanies their actions. This requirement of right faith or piety is set out in Genesis 2 and 3, and is seen in that God requires an additional step in the performance by man of this sequence of actions. That additional step is the giving of thanks, a conscious act of self-submission to God, affirming that He is the one who set up the conditions for human labor, and affirming that He does all things well. The act of thanksgiving is placed immediately after the first step of taking hold, before the act of restructuring. While all our actions are to be pervaded by a spirit of thanks, 
An act of thanks is at least sometimes to be performed at this point in the sequence. What is thanksgiving? It is a rendering of praise and an affirmation of dependence upon someone else. A person does not thank himself. That would be absurd. Thus God did not thank himself when he made the world. When, however, I thank you for something, I am acknowledging that you have done something for me, acknowledging dependence, and expressing gratitude, not resentment. Romans one twenty one, speaking of all men, and thus pointedly of Adam and Eve, says, For even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks. Man was created on the sixth day of creation week. He was made in the middle of the day, after the animals. Before that first day was over, God brought various animals to Adam for Adam to name. The next day was the Sabbath, the time when Adam was to come before God and give thanks, glorifying God as God. It is important to reflect on what it meant for Adam to name the animals. These were not new names resulting from a work of restructuring. Rather, Adam was coming to grips with things the way they already were. To put a name on something is a way of laying hold on it. We cannot deal with things we cannot name. Thus, it was not labor in the strict sense for Adam to name the animals. Adam was simply taking hold of the creation. Before beginning to work with the creation, Adam was to give thanks to God, affirming his sovereignty. Adam was not to give thanks to God empty-handed. Rather, it was with God's creation in his hands that Adam was to render thanks to God. This involved the dedication of his future works to God. Thus, Adam's future works would involve moving the creation from glory to glory by restructuring and redistributing it. Adam's sixfold right for life thus was as follows. 1. Adam was to lay hold on the cosmos. 2. Before working with it, Adam was to give thanks to God for his gift of the cosmos. 3. Adam would then break down and restructure that portion of the cosmos within his grasp. He would give new names to the results, in other words, Genesis 4.17. 4. Adam would then distribute his works to others. A tithe, 10%, would be given to God on the Sabbath day of judgment for God's evaluation. The rest Adam would either keep for himself or distribute to others through giving or trading. Just as directions for use accompany things we buy today, so Adam would have given directions to those who received his gifts or bought his wares. 5. Adam's works would then be evaluated. Adam would evaluate his own works, and so would other people. The portion given to God would be evaluated by him, the part for the whole. 6. The works of the unfallen Adam would be enjoyed by all, particularly by God, for whom they would be a savor of sweet incense. There are two aspects of this I should like to call attention to. The first is that this process takes place in time. Thus, what is good at an early stage of history may not still be good later. A drawing by a child may be evaluated very good by adults, but the same crudities from the hand of an adult would not be given the same evaluation. It is important to affirm the eschatological character of the good, because it helps to explain the fact that the products of human work do not endure. It also explains why each stage of the Old Covenant was good and wonderful at the time, but yet needed to be superseded later on. The New Testament speaks disparagingly of the Old Covenant, using such phrases as weak and worthless elementary principles, Galatians 4.9, milk for babies, Hebrews 5.13, and the like, but only in comparison with the New Covenant. In 1400 BC, the Mosaic Covenant was the most wonderful thing in the world, Deuteronomy 4.6-8. 
but what is good for a child is not necessarily still good for an adult, and it is perverse to cling to childish things. Galatians 4, 1-11, 1 Corinthians 13, 11. The second aspect of this, which also pertains to the fact that human works do not in themselves endure, is that man's sixfold action is an act of glorification. Man is God's agent for the glorification of the world. The world was created glorious, but is to become more glorious progressively under the hand of man. Glory is a difficult concept to describe, but clearly it has to do with the revelation of God. We know that God is fully revealed, and thus is fully glorified, in all that he has made. Yet, the work of man is to reveal God even more, and bring him even more glory. This is a theological paradox, called sometimes the problem of the full bucket. If God is fully glorious, how can the creation add to his glory? If God is fully revealed in creation, Romans 1, 19-20, how can he become more fully revealed? This is a mystery, but it is also clearly the truth. The progressive revelation and glorification of God in history does not take place by a process of unveiling what is hidden, but by transforming what is already revealed. This is the mystery of time, of growth, of history. It means something amazing, however, that even in the simplest of human actions, God's glory can be enhanced and his person revealed more fully. This second aspect also gives perspective to the transitory nature of human works. The great paintings of the Reformation era are darkening and cracking with age. Many have been destroyed in wars. Of Bach's five great passions, only two are extant. All our works are like castles of sand. Thus, it is sometimes argued that human work in the creation has meaning only in that it trains men. Adam himself is progressively transformed and glorified through the sixfold action. While this touches an important truth, the problem is with the word only. By itself, the notion that human labor exists only to train men reduces the value of work only to the subjective dimension. The objective foundation needed is the confession that human labor, if it is ultimately worthwhile, progressively reveals and glorifies God. Even if the artifact does not itself endure, like the crude sketches of a child, the revelation of God and glorification of the creation is cumulative. Corruption and Restoration Unfortunately, this process of glorification was corrupted. The sin of Adam lay precisely at the second step of his right. He refused to give thanks to God, because he could not do so. With the forbidden fruit in his hand, Adam could not give praise to God. Thus, Adam's original sin entailed, among other dimensions, the failure to glorify God as God, by restructuring the creation along his desired lines, and the failure to give thanks, by expressing dependence upon God and gratitude for what God had given him. Thus, the sixfold action designed for man's good was corrupted. In Cain, we see this fleshed out. 1. Cain laid hold of the creation to restructure it into the city of man. 2. Cain did not give thanks or express dependence and gratitude to God or to anyone else. 3. Cain restructured part of the land of Nod into a wicked city, naming it Enoch. Genesis 4.17 4. Cain distributed his work to his son, Enoch, and to his heirs. In so doing, he became their lawgiver. 5. God came down to evaluate the works of men and found them evil. Genesis 6.3 and 5, and also 11.5. 6. 
God resolved the situation by bringing judgment on them and thereby rested. Genesis 6-7 and see also 11-8 and also Deuteronomy 28-63 and Psalm 2-4. Thus, instead of progressively glorifying the world, man's labors progressively degraded it. Instead of a process of glorification, we have a process of debasement, though restrained by common grace, the crumbs that fall on the dogs from the Lord's table. Matthew 15.26-27 Instead of a paradoxical increase in the revelation of God, we have an equally paradoxical obscuring of that revelation. Yet God continues to be fully revealed. Unless arrested, this process of debasement would lead to the destruction of the world. God's promise after the flood, however, was that never again would He permit the process to go that far. Rather, in man's youth, God would intervene to set things right. Genesis 8.21. That restoration, of course, entailed the whole work of Jesus Christ, especially his death under God's wrath as a substitute for our sins, and his resurrection as the inauguration of the transfigured kingdom of God. In practical terms, Jesus set at the center of his kingdom a right designed to restructure our thinking and reset our course along the true lines of our calling. He did this by establishing the ritual of the Lord's Supper, our Holy Communion, which ritual restores us to the holy sixfold action. 1. Jesus took bread and took the cup after he himself had sipped from it. 2. Jesus gave thanks for the bread and the wine. 3. Jesus restructured the bread by breaking it. In terms of the Old Covenant sacrificial system, when the sacrifice was slain and divided into pieces, the blood was always separated from the flesh, Leviticus 1, 5, and 9. Thus, Jesus gave them the wine in an act separate from his giving the bread, and it should be partaken of in a separate act. Jesus gave new names to the products of his actions, calling the bread his body and the wine his blood. 4. Jesus distributed it to all present, giving them a command to do this as his memorial. 5. They all tasted of it. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, 8. All but one evaluated it as good. Judas evaluated it as bad, assuming for the sake of argument that Judas was still present when the Lord's Supper was instituted, a disputed point. 6. After Judas left, the godly disciples remained with Jesus, enjoying his fellowship and teaching for a time. John 14-17 The performance of this weekly rite in worship is the heart of liturgical piety, and this is seen in both major sections of the worship service. The sixfold performance in the Eucharist, the Holy Communion, is obvious, but it is also performed in the Synaxis, the service of the Word. In virtually every kind of church, regardless how non-liturgical it may seek to be, during the time of proclamation, the Word is first read, then thanks is offered, and then the Word is preached. Thus, the rite as applied to proclamation is this. 1. The reader lays hold of the Word, reading a portion or portions of it without comment. 2. Thanks is offered for the word, and a request that the Spirit bless the exposition of it. 3. The word is broken down and restructured in the preaching of it. Preaching expounds the text, using different words from what are found there, new names as it were, and in that preaching, 4. The word is distributed to the people listening, as God's command for living. The word provides both promise and law, both a description of kingdom privilege and an outline of kingdom duties. 5. The people evaluate what they hear. By that, I do not mean to imply that the people are obligated to pass some kind of professional judgment on the sermon, 
but that inevitably they will evaluate what they hear. The people are commended if they evaluate carefully. Acts 17.10-11 6. Assuming they find it good and profitable, the people will take the message and inspiration with them as they leave, and integrate it into their lives, finding enjoyment therein. Not only is the performance of the rite in worship the heart of liturgical piety, but it also restores us to true practical piety. Jesus gives us the pattern we are to follow in all of life. Because of his work we can, in him, lay hold on the fallen creation, no matter how perverse it has become. Give thanks for it, and go to work on it, restoring and transforming it progressively to the glory of God. My transforming, in a mystery, bred into his body, Jesus provides a paradigm for the entire nature of the kingdom. The church is also called Christ's body, which means that as men are brought into the church, this is parallel to the transformation of bread into Christ's flesh. Men are broken, cut in half by the covenant word, Hebrews 4.12, and restructured into the body of Christ. Eve, the bride, is cut off from her one flesh relationship with Adam and restructured into one body by the Spirit with the new Adam. The fallen first creation, whether bread or people, is transfigured by death and resurrected into union with Christ. Indeed, since all things are in Christ, not only men but also the entire cosmos is progressively transformed by being restructured, repositioned, into the cosmic body of Christ. Colossians 1, 17-23 Thus, the structure of liturgical piety and of practical piety is the same. The sixfold action. The redemptive key to both is thanksgiving in Christ. Liturgical piety serves practical piety by a. setting the basic pattern of the Lord's Supper, and b. transferring men into union with Christ, and then sending them out to transform the world after that same image. The distinction between the Christian and the rebel thus lies at the point of thanksgiving. It is not possible to take hold of the world with the intention of sinning and still give thanks to God for it. A man cannot load a gun intending to murder his boss and then give thanks to God for it. The Centrality of Worship Worship, then, trains us in the proper mode of dominion. Without God's right to repattern us, we would go out and work with the world after the fashion of Cain, and take it and ourselves down a course of degradation. In worship, however, we are repatterned to a true approach to the world. For this reason, the historic liturgies of the Church have stressed the giving of thanks. In this way, the Church serves to transform the world. The Eucharistic liturgy that grew up rapidly and organically around the basic sixfold rite of the Supper, and Eucharist mean thanksgiving, stresses thanksgiving. This is still seen in any liturgical church today. The following, or something like it, is found in the worship of all historical churches that have preserved the old Catholic liturgical forms. This example is drawn from within the Western tradition. At the beginning of the communion service, after the Sursum Corda, lift up your hearts and ascent into heaven for worship, the minister says, Let us give thanks unto the Lord our God, to which the people reply, It is fitting and right to do so. Continuing, the minister prays, It is truly fitting, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks unto you, affirming that thanksgiving must characterize all that we do and not just the central act of worship. Therefore, with angels and archangels, and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, he says, whereupon follows the sanctus, 
the angelic Holy, Holy, Holy. The Eucharistic prayer that follows includes thanksgiving as well, with such words as remembering therefore his salutary precept, his life-giving suffering and death, his glorious resurrection, ascension, and enthronement, and the promise of his coming again. We give thanks to you, Almighty God, not as we ought, but as we are able. After the Lord's Supper, the minister exhorts the congregation, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, to which the people reply, and his mercy endures forever. There follows another prayer of thanksgiving. We give thanks to you, Almighty God, that you have refreshed us with the life-giving gift. The service closes with the Benedictimus, the minister calling, Bless we the Lord! and the congregation shouting, Thanks be to God. In this way, worship keys the believer into the proper frame of mind for all of life. Since men continually and unceasingly are engaged in acts of restructuring, distributing, and evaluating, it would be impossible to try to sort out every action in life and engage in a particular act of thanksgiving at the appropriate spot in the sequence. We do not ordinarily stop to give thanks, for instance, when we get a glass from the cabinet, to return to the example used above. All the same, there are certain specific times in the day when, according to the consensus of Christian wisdom of all ages, it is appropriate to stop and give thanks. The most obvious of these is mealtime. After the food has been set on the table, so that we visually take hold of it, we offer thanks and then get to work eating it restructuring, appreciating, etc. Similarly, first thing in the morning, as we lay hold on the day's chores and events, we give thanks. Public meetings used to begin with prayer before getting down to the work. In this way, the simple sixfold rite is applied constantly in daily life, and in this way the kingdom comes. The stress on thanksgiving in liturgical piety is thus the key to practical or vocational piety. In the early church, all life was thus worship either the special worship of the rite, or the general worship of thanksgiving in all of life, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. This worship-centered piety was the characteristic of the earliest church. It must become ours today. Conclusion and Qualifying Addendum While it would be interesting and valuable to trace out many more examples of how men are to transfigure God's world through the sixfold pattern, Our main concern in the present book is with God's own actions. At each stage of biblical history, God lays hold of an existing, deteriorating situation, breaks his people down through a death-resurrection transition, and reestablishes them with a renewed covenant. Each time God does this, he brings in a new covenant, a new stage of history, a new world model. We shall trace this pattern in chapter 12 through 18. By becoming familiar with how God acts, we shall become much better able to understand what is going on in our world at the present time. My analysis of the activity of work and of covenant-making into five or six steps originally grew out of the observations of Dom Gregory Dix on the fourfold action of the Eucharist, as I mentioned above. I am not, however, arguing that this is the only useful or biblical way to break down the sequence. In my initial study, I did not relate this sequence to covenant-making or covenant renewal in worship, but simply to the relationship between worship and work, the sixfold action of worship restoring us to a properly thankful attitude in our work. There is, however, a clear correlation between the five stages of God's work of creation and the aspects of God's covenant-making, 
which can also be grouped in a set of five. Students of the nature of the covenant and of covenant making in the Bible have divided the sequence in various ways. We can say that in its fullest manifestations, God's covenant with man, which we can illustrate from the Mosaic covenant, entails the following steps and aspects. 1. Announcement of God's transcendence, his laying hold on the situation. Exodus 2, 24-25, and chapter 20, verse 3. 2. Declaration of God's new name, appropriate for the new covenant being installed. Exodus 3, 13-15, chapter 6, verses 2-8, and chapter 20, verse 2a. 3. Statement of how God brought his people from the old covenant and world into the new one. Exodus 22b, and Deuteronomy 1, 6 through chapter 4, verse 40. 4. Establishment of the new covenant order, especially the governmental hierarchies thereof. Exodus 18, 13 through 27, and Deuteronomy 1, 9 through 18. 5. Appointment of new names for the new finished product. Genesis 1, 4 through 5, and 6 through 8, and 9 through 10. At Moses' time, the new name was Children of Israel. 6. Grant or distribution of an area of dominion to the covenant steward or vassal, Exodus 3.8 and Deuteronomy 1.19-12.31. 7. Stipulations concerning the management of this grant, Exodus chapters 20-23 and Deuteronomy 5-26.19. 8. Statement of the terms by which God will evaluate man's performance, promised blessings and threatened curses. Exodus 23, verses 25-33, and Deuteronomies chapter 27 and 28. 9. Placement of witnesses to report to God on man's behavior. Exodus 23, 20-23, and Deuteronomy 4, 26, and chapter 30, verse 19. 10. Arrangements for the deposition of the covenant documents. Exodus 40, 20, and Deuteronomy 31, 9-13. 11. Arrangements for Succession of Covenant Vice Regents, Deuteronomy 31, 7, chapter 14 and 23, Deuteronomy chapter 34. 12. Artistic poems and hymns that encapsulate the covenant and that are to be taught to succeeding generations, Deuteronomy 31, 14 through 33, 29. We could probably come up with other aspects as well, depending on how much detail we wish to go into. This covenant order may be helpfully and biblically grouped in more than one way. It is possible and desirable to see the sequence as proceeding from God's sovereign control, points 1 through 3, to manifestation of God's sovereign authority, points 4 through 7, and culminating in revelations of God's sovereign presence with his people, points 8 through 12. It is also possible and desirable to see the sequence as having five aspects, God's transcendence, points 1 and 2, New order and hierarchy, points 3 through 5. Stipulations, points 6 and 7. Sanctions, blessings and curses, points 8 and 9. And succession arrangements, points 10 and 12. In the present study, which is concerned with how God institutes his new kingdom progressively in history, we shall basically be concerned with four steps or stages. 1. God's announcement of his intention, including his judgment of the old world. 2. The exodus of God's people to a new world. 3. The establishment of God's people in the new world. 4. The history and decline of the new world. We shall reserve a full discussion of this sequence, however, for chapter 13, because before we begin to look at history, we need to take a closer look at man and at the world.